If you have a Bible, please uh, access it and turn to Luke chapter 22. And it is fitting that we sing a song where we are shouting and declaring that victory belongs to Jesus as we get into this passage in Luke chapter 22. Because in Jesus' day, in, in this time, you would have not known that victory belongs to Jesus. As the world rages against Him, it looks as if victory belongs to Jesus' enemies. And so let's turn there, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And uh, I don't know if we have any Bibles, um, but my brother over here said he needs a Bible. Um, somebody. Luke chapter 22. Starting in verse 63, we're going to read through verse 71, and then we're going to uh, ask God to help us and help me as I, as I seek to preach this passage to God's people today. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. As these soldiers are encountering Jesus, as these religious leaders are encountering Jesus, we might ask ourselves, what would this encounter be like for us? As we encounter Jesus, will we receive Him or will we reject Him? So I want to preach to you this morning then on this topic, encountering Jesus. Let's pray and let's ask God for His help. Father, as we come into this passage today, I do ask that You help me preach this. I pray that I would say things that are true and right, that I would preach with freedom and power, so that Your people might hear and receive. I pray that hearts would be open to Your Word today, that You would shape us and mold us and fashion us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin with a parable for you. You're living in the uh, land of destruction. You head out on a boat and you discover the land of faith. 
and you say, well, I can't reside here. I need to find some neutral ground. And so you discover this, this island of unbelief. Seems nice, seems pleasant, I'm just going to settle here. Neither destruction nor faith. What you don't understand is that the sea is called the sea of death. That the island of unbelief is an illusion. That there is no neutrality. There is no neutral position between faith in Jesus Christ and rejection of Jesus Christ, a.k.a. our imminent destruction as we stand before Him as He is the judge. Yet people today think that they can find a neutral ground between the two. I'm not against Jesus, but I'm not necessarily for Jesus. Why is it that people think this? Why is it that people think that they can have neutral ground? C.S. Lewis Some years ago, he said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. He says, every square inch, every minute of every hour is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. What he's saying is this, is if you are not with God in Christ, then you are counterclaimed by the enemy which the Bible calls Satan. Do you believe that you can find some neutral ground? Do you believe that you can encounter Jesus even this morning and have a neutral response? Neither accepting Him fully nor rejecting Him. It's for this reason I want to focus on this topic, encountering Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is the most important question any one of us can answer in our lives. Who is Jesus? The biblical picture of Jesus is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so as we get into our text, and as Judas has betrayed Jesus, Peter has denied Jesus, The crowds have now uh, arrested Jesus. He's before the soldiers. He's before the religious leaders. The question that we are going to ask ourselves this morning is how will they respond to Jesus? How will the leaders of Israel, the teachers, the elders, those who have religious authority, how will they respond to Jesus? To Jesus, and I, I want to get at your heart today and ask you this same question. How are you responding to Jesus? If you reject Him by faith, you would reject Him if He was here in the flesh. In the flesh, talking to you this morning, you would reject Him. but He's not here in the flesh. However, the Scripture says that when two or three are gathered in the name of Christ, He is here spiritually. He is with us spiritually this morning. Everybody in this room 
is having an encounter with Christ this morning. So will, will you reject Him? Or will you receive Him this morning as your Lord and as your Savior? There are three responses of the crowd in this story that I want to examine today as we examine our own response to Jesus. Three responses that we see in this narrative. The first response is that they disrespectfully mock Him. They disrespectfully mock Him in verses 63 through 65 while Peter is out there denying Him. What's happening with Jesus. What's going on with Jesus during this time? Well, we're told in verses 63 through 65 that while Peter's out in the courtyard denying him, which we looked at last week, Jesus is standing with soldiers. They've got him uh, likely in some sort of chains and some sort of shackle, and he is being mocked by these soldiers. As these soldiers encounter Christ, Do they receive Him as Lord? They're standing in front of the Savior of the world. Do they turn from their sins and trust in Him to have an eternal hope of salvation? Well, as we can clearly see as the story begins, they mock Him. They mock Him. As all of God's prophets have been treated in the world. Think of Jeremiah. We spent, uh, as a church, what, a year and a half or so in Jeremiah? And so I use Jeremiah about once a month in sermon illustrations because it's just so, so much material there. Uh, Jeremiah, he was, Jeremiah was what? What was he? I'm going to need some help this morning, by the way. Some facts, some amens, and some responses. He was a prophet. Thank you. Um, Jeremiah was a prophet. Was Jeremiah wholly accepted or wholly rejected by the world? He was, he was rejected by God's people, by, by Israel. He was outright rejected. In Jeremiah chapter 6, God comes to Jeremiah and he's like, I'm telling you, I am going to destroy these people because they have not turned from their sins and they have not turned toward me. And Jeremiah responds to the Lord with frustration in chapter 6. And he says, he says, God, I have told them. I've delivered the warning. I've called them to repentance. I've pointed them to salvation. And Jeremiah says that they laugh and they refuse to listen. Jeremiah was made fun of. Jeremiah dealt with death threats. He dealt with murder attempts. He was thrown into a pit with feces up to his waist. He was miserably treated. And this is how the world treats all of God's true prophets. They're mocked. God has always sent prophets with a word. The prophets have a role. They they deliver a They deliver a word of warning. They they deliver a call to repentance from your sin and they deliver, or uh, they they display rather, a, a, a way to salvation. Long ago, in various times, in various ways, God spoke through the prophets. But in recent days, God has spoke to us through His Son. How do they treat the ultimate prophet? 
Well, they treat him the same way they've always treated God's prophets. Jesus here is, is, is mocked. In verse 63, the men holding Jesus, they're in custody, mocking him. That word mocking right there is the main verb in this sentence, meaning everything else that comes after it are various displays of their mocking, their various ways in which they mocked Jesus. So how did they mock him? Well, they beat him. Do you guys realize that before Jesus even went to the cross, he was already bloodied and bruised and tortured? They beat him. They, they blindfolded him. Because, see, they have heard that he is what? A, a prophet. They've heard he's a prophet. And so they're going to play some games with him. They blindfold him. They take turns striking him, it says. And they ask him, who, tell us, who, who struck you? Who was it? Next guy goes, strikes him. Who was that? They're mocking him. They're beating him. They're torturing him as a way to laugh at this final prophet. Look at verse 65. It's almost as if Luke doesn't have the time or space to, to, to tell us all that they did to him. He just says, and they said many other things against him. Blaspheming him. That word blaspheme is to deride, to revile. Here is the true prophet that brings the final word of warning, the final call to repentance, and is the display of salvation. And they revile him. Church, the question that I have to ask you this morning is, is how do you treat Jesus? How do, how do you receive Him? Do you receive Him and His Word as the final Word from the final ultimate prophet? And heed His warning, heed His call to repentance and embrace Him as the way to salvation or do you deride him? Do you revile him? Do you, do you mock him? Or I could turn this another way and I could, I could say this, if we are representatives of Jesus in this world, do we think that the world has changed? Do we think that the world has become a nicer place for Jesus? You see, I think too often Christians are trying to get in bed with the world. We want to have some Jesus, but we also want to have the world to warm up to in our beds. And so what do we do? Well, we don't represent the whole of Jesus. I mean, think about it. What is the gospel? You know, we, I should say this, we are not prophets in this literal sense, but we bear a prophetic role, don't we? Because we proclaim the message delivered to us by the prophets. And so we, 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 we bear a prophetic role in the world. What is that prophetic role? Well, what do the prophets do? They, they call uh, or they issue a word of warning. 
They call people to repentance and they display a way of salvation. Is that not what we are called to do as evangelistas, as evangelists? That's, that's who we are in this world. So then how do we navigate this when we also want the acceptance of the world? Well, we just kind of strike out some of the things that the world doesn't like about Jesus. And we only represent the parts of Jesus that the world embraces. See, some people, when they read this and they, and they, they see how the world treated Jesus, they, it, there's a disconnect there because they don't feel that the world mocks them in this way. And look, I, I, I don't want us to go out and try to, try to get persecuted. That's not my goal. We are not to be hateful, mean-spirited people who are just trying to make enemies in this world. That is not my goal. But I do want to put out this question. And that is this. Does the world accept you because you don't wholly represent Jesus? You only represent the parts of Jesus that are accepted by the lost, blind man. Do we tell the whole gospel to our friends and our families and our neighbors? The whole gospel which begins begins with a problem. And that is rebellion and rejection of God. A massive problem and that is hell, condemnation, wrath of God for, for sinners. Well, we have to understand the bad news before we can understand the good news that Jesus came and died took on the wrath of God for our sins and three days later rose from the dead and called us to turn from our sins and to trust wholly in Him, receiving Him as Savior and as Lord. Do we, do we proclaim the whole gospel? And maybe you're not a Christian here. What I just said to you is what we understand to be the good news of Christianity and it's available for you today to receive Christ as your Savior, your King, and your Lord, receive Him now. They disrespectfully mock Him. Number two, the second response we see from the world in this text in verse 66 is that they unjustly try Him. The key word is unjustly. Injustice. They don't give Him a fair trial. After a sleepless night, Jesus was likely thrown into a, after he was beat, he was likely thrown into a, uh, a dungeon underneath the high priest's house. And there he would have been kept for a couple hours. After this brutal sleepless night, the sun begins to rise over uh, uh, the, the horizon. And in verse 66, we are told what happens next. When day came, it says, The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both the chief priests and the scribes. And they led him away to the council. Now the elders here would be the representative of all of the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem. They led them, they let lead Jesus to their council. This word council is the word Sanhedrin. It was actually an official term. It was a group of the religious leaders who, uh, and political leaders who gathered together to represent the people and uh, who would become the, uh, uh, the, the court of law, if you would, in 
the land. In order to understand what's going on here, we have to go back. We have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to go back to when God gave Israel the law. All the way back to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. God gave Israel, His people, a law. And they were to follow this law. And built into the law was a demand for justice in the land. And the demand for justice was impeccable. According to the law of God given to Israel, the criminal justice system was prevented from spreading a false report. Do not spread a false report, Exodus 23, verse 1. Do not pervert justice, Leviticus 19.15. They were not to pervert justice by siding with the crowd, Exodus 23, verse 2. According to Deuteronomy, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, Deuteronomy 19.5. Foreigners were to be tried with just as much fairness and equity as any Israelite citizen. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17. Now as time went on, God, God's people were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to display the, to the world what it looks like to have fairness in their justice system. And rightly so, as time went on, by Jesus' day, uh, a system was put in place throughout Israel to ensure that the people would follow the law that we discover mostly in the book of Deuteronomy. An elaborate system of justice was put in place. In every town, in every region around Israel, there was a, a local jurisdiction put in place. They were these small councils, and each council was known as a Sanhedrin. Uh, the, the leaders of that town would gather together, and they would form the ruling body for that town. And in Jerusalem, there was sort of the Sanhedrin. This was, in some ways, the Supreme Court of Israel. It consisted of 72 members, including the high priest, And there were a number of rules that that were put into place to keep them uh, a people of justice to ensure that they would follow the law as it relates to justice in the land. Some of these rules, proceedings, were to take place publicly in the temple and not in a home to ensure a fair trial. The trial was to take place at day, not at night, so that people could be witnesses of it so that things would be gone forth with equality and equity. The accused was to have a defense. They were required to have a a defense. If the accused wanted to defend themselves, they were permitted. Sufficient time would be given to allow the accused to, to find defense. There were very technical definitions for blasphemy, which was one of the strongest charges that you could bring against somebody in Israel. There were very technical definitions for blasphemy so that it could not be used lightly. A verdict for death, which the Sanhedrin by by Roman law was not actually able to 
to carry out. For them, it was basically to turn them over to Rome so that Rome could, could kill them. The verdict of death would require at least two days uh, of, of thinking and debating prior to making that verdict. As a matter of fact, prior uh, uh, to the judges sitting together and, and giving a verdict on, on such, such a charge, they were all, all of the Sanhedrin was to fast for 24 hours and to pray because of the gravity of the matter as it relates to the death penalty. There were to be no criminal charges during Passover season or on feast days so as not to rush or pervert justice. All evidence had to be guaranteed and substantiated by at least two or three witnesses in accordance with Deuteronomy. The words of the accused could not be used in their own conviction, meaning if somebody confessed to something and there were no witnesses, that confession could not be used against them because maybe they're out of their mind. Isn't that interesting? Experts who have studied the, the, the ancient laws of Israel said that their, their system of justice was on par, if not superior, to any nation that has ever come after it. Which is why the trial of Jesus is jaw-dropping. Israel, they were, they were to be a people of light to the nations. They were to display fairness and equality and equity. Justice was a non-negotiable for them. The injustice then surrounding Jesus' trial was, was blatantly disrespectful, an offense to the, to the entire nation of Israel and to the God that they represented. In Jesus' case, the proceedings took place in a home, the home of Annas, the high priest. Annas had already reached a decision. Annas was sort of the boss of bosses. He was the, the high priest. He was the, the chief judge, if you would. And he had already reached a decision by morning. What he does going before the Sanhedrin is really just a sham trial. Just to ratify the decision that Annas has already made. It was done, as I said, in a home, not uh, in a temple, as required by their rules. It was at night, not daylight. Jesus had no defense. Jesus was accused of blasphemy, even though he did not commit blasphemy in the technical sense. The verdict was delivered in less than one day, as opposed to the two days required. He was tried on a feast day. The contradictory testimony should have nullified any evidence. As a matter of fact, there was no evidence. The accused could not give testimony against themselves. Do you realize that they could not find one person to give testimony against Jesus? They did not have one witness. 
And we're going to see in the text that all they do is take Jesus' word and twist it. And, say they, and they say, you've accused yourself. Breaking their own rules of justice. From beginning to end, Jesus' trial was a complete sham. Now the question that we've got to ask is this, why? Why did they want Jesus dead so quickly and so strongly? Well, let's go back just a couple days. It's Holy Week, and uh, it's been since March, since we were in this passage that I'm about to uh, reference to you, so you might need to read it later on today as a reminder, but Jesus goes into the temple, and he cleans out the temple. Remember this passage? He, he, he makes his own whip, and he walks in, and he starts whipping people, and he starts flipping tables. Why? Well, there was another system, a, a system of injustice that was put into place in the temple. You see, in the temple, they would come, and they would, everybody would bring their own sacrifice, an animal, and they would lay it on the altar, and that was the way that they worshipped God back then. But there was a whole system put in place to profit off of the worship. And so people would come, and they would say, oh, that, that, that lamb is not good enough. That dove is not good enough. That pigeon is not good enough. You're going to have to buy one of ours. To the point where they realize, like, it's not even worth bringing an animal. We'll just buy when we get there because they reject everything that we bring. And as you might imagine, they marked up the price. And so as people come, uh, uh, they're paying out the nose for a lamb or for a pigeon or for a dove. And somebody's making money off of this. You know who's making money off of this? Guess. I think somebody said it. According, according to Josephus, the historian of this time, as well as other first century historians, he said this, this entire system of making money at the temple was set up by, by Caiaphas' father-in-law, the high priest, Annas. Mobster. Oh, Jesus knew that. When Jesus was weaving that whip together, who do you think he had in mind? When Jesus is going in and flipping tables, who's, whose business is he disrupting? Jesus was outraged. He did not look the other way with injustice. He was outraged by the injustice in such a way that it came down on him. Jesus was outraged by it. He does not turn a blind eye to injustice. And church, we cannot ever allow anyone to make us believe that as Christians we are to turn a blind eye to injustice either. Look, we don't live in ancient Israel. We, we're, we, America is not Israel. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. We are not a nation that is to represent God to the world. But Christians are. You see what I'm saying? Like, as Christians, we are the representative of God to the world. 
The church is governed by the values and the laws of God's kingdom. We only obey laws of the world as they can accord with the laws of God's kingdom. We are the representatives. And so therefore, we cannot turn a blind eye to suffering and to injustice in the land as those who are created in the image of God suffer injustice, we are to move and act and speak. Our place in this world is still to represent the kingdom of God values to the world around us. Desmond Tutu, he said, if, if, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the, the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has his foot on the tail of a, a, a mouse and you say that you're neutral, the mouse, he says, will not appreciate your neutrality. Yes, Jesus willingly took the system of injustice on his own head, but he was never neutral in the face of injustice as others were harmed. As we think of injustices in the world, from millions of babies slaughtered in the womb to the fact that Breonna Taylor's killer has yet to be apprehended, injustice today should horrify us, shock us, call us to lament, and when possible, call us to act. And the injustice today is a small taste of the injustice that crushed Jesus in this moment. Jesus Christ became the greatest victim of injustice the world has ever seen. And you know, they couldn't give Him a fair trial. They could not possibly have given Him a fair trial and put Him on the cross. My family and I, a couple months ago, we watched this movie on Amazon, Just Mercy. I recommend it to you. It's about uh, the trial of Walter McMillian with Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx. This attorney, young attorney, Brian Stevenson, uh, goes down to Alabama to represent Walter McMillian, who uh, has been, uh, through an unjust fashion, put on the death, uh, death row for a murder that he did not commit. And as you watch this movie, and as it kind of gives a tale of a broader picture of injustice, what's infuriating about it is how uh, you, it's, it's clear that injustice thrives on covering up the truth. What's clear is that you could not give this man a fair trial and put him on the, on the death row. Why do oppressors do what they do? Because they want to because they want to maintain their perceived power. There may be a hundred reasons as to why, but they're going to do what they do through covering up the truth, not through unveiling the truth. If Walter McMillian was given a fair trial, he would have never been on death row. Church, how much more so? If Jesus Christ was given a fair trial, he would have never been on the cross. 
Because if Jesus was given a fair trial, He would have been proven to be the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Here's what I'm trying to say. Is that there was nothing they had on Jesus. They had to be dishonest in order to get Him on the cross. If they were honest, He would have not been shown to be guilty. If they were fair, they could have not ignored this decision uh, to put Him on the cross. And listen, still today, the world cannot fairly critique Jesus and write Him off. They just can't. I don't know if you've ever seen like YouTube videos that critique Christianity or posts that get retweeted and shared and reshared that critique Christianity. And you as a Christian, you read it and you're like, eh, yeah, that's not a fair critique of Jesus Christ. Find me a YouTube video that critiques Christianity, or critiques Christ, I should say. All right? True Christ. You can, you, look, you can critique Christians all day. A, a video that critiques Christ and does it fairly. Fairly puts him on trial and shows that he is not worthy of following. Worthy of being our Lord and our Savior. You can't find it. In order to try Jesus, you have to put Him on trial in an unjust, unfair fashion. And that is exactly what they did. Why? Because they knew that they would not get Him on the cross any other way. If they waited one day, the next day was Sabbath, two days, by that third day, it's possible that He would have been out. They had to move quick. They had to move fast. And Annas, the high priest, and his cronies, the Sanhedrin, were highly motivated to put him on the cross and to get rid of him. He was unjustly tried. Verse 67, they ask him a question. They say, if you are the Christ, now Christ is not the last name of Jesus, contrary to what some people believe. Christ is a title uh, that was given to Jesus. The title is the title for Messiah. He is the Messiah of Israel. If you are the Christ, they say, tell us. But he said to them, look, if I tell you, you will not believe me. Jesus here in his own words is highlighting the injustice of this trial. He's saying this is not a real trial. This is not a trial coming after the truth you don't care about the truth. You don't want the truth. You want to believe what you want to believe. And so if I tell you the truth of who I am, you're not going to believe me anyway. And, and if I ask you, verse 68, you will not answer me. Jesus has been dealing with the silence of the religious leaders his entire ministry. And he knows that they are not after truth. You know, there is an irony and a, and a horror to what he says next as they are uh, uh, putting him on trial, asking him if he is the Christ, the Messiah. The next phrase is the phrase that just does them in. Verse 69. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man 
shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Let's break that down. From now on, that means forever. Forever. Forever and ever. The Son of Man, that's the nickname Jesus gave to Himself, will be seated. One rabbi of this time says that it is uh, disrespectful to say that any human would ever sit with God. Only God sits in heaven. The Jews believed that humans might stand before God, but never sit with God. Jesus says, I will be seated. Where? At the right hand. That is the place of preeminence and power. That is a place of equality. At the right hand of God. Jesus is saying, I actually am the judge. Oh, this is ironic because he's on trial. And he's saying, look, guys, <laughs> just want you to know, I'm the judge. That's ironic. And it's horrifying. It's horrifying because if you unjustly tried Jesus, you've got to understand that you will stand before Jesus one day, the risen Christ, and He is the judge of the living and the dead. They will all stand before Christ. Irony and horror in that one sentence. And so what do they do? Third response, and I'll close. They totally reject Him. They totally reject Him. He's the Christ. They reject Him. He's divine. They reject Him. Look at verse 70. So they said, are you the Son of God then? Meaning, are you, that's a reference for divinity. Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. That's similar to our expression today. You said it. Your words. Are you the Son of God then? <laughs> that's, that's what Jesus is saying there. Verse 71, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. Final nail in this unjust trial, they use his words against him. And with that, they send him to Rome. Jesus knows full well what he's doing. From his own lips... From his own lips, Jesus knows what he's doing. There is no way that they can fairly get him on the cross. Jesus will choose to go to the cross based on his own words. Jesus wanted to go to the cross for you. Those of us who are unjust towards Jesus... Jesus wanted to go to the cross to take the greatest injustice on Himself and to become the sacrificial lamb taking the wrath of God so that we might be made free. So that we might be forgiven. From His own lips. Oh, if they only knew what came from the lips of Jesus.
if they only actually heard the words that came out of the lips of Jesus. If they only took seriously these words. I am the way, the truth of the life came from His own lips. Come unto Me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest came from His own lips. But they mock Him. Did you know that mock, the, 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 the root idea of mocking is, is to treat someone's words as you would a child. It's to not take very seriously. It's to take light. To make light of. For example, I was driving to Ohio this past week to have a quick visit with my grandmother. And I had my kids with me. And after five hours in the car, my three-year-old Chapman starts saying, I'm carsick, I'm carsick. And we're like, oh, that's cute. You've heard that before. And, you know, a little pat on the head. And he says, I'm carsick, I'm carsick. And we just laugh at him. That's so cute, isn't it? He's heard other people say it. He's heard, and, and then he starts saying, I'm going to puke. I'm going to puke. And we're like, oh, he doesn't even know what that feels like. <laughs> you know, it's so, it's so, you know, so endearing. Um, and then, uh, then he puked. <laughs> All over the place. <laughs> he had given us one warning after another. But listen, that right there is actually the definition of mocking. It's to not take seriously. It's to treat as if a child said it. You, you've heard what Jesus has said. If you don't take it seriously, you're mocking Him. This is what's happening here with this whole trial. It's, 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 the whole thing is a mockery. Chapman will not be mocked when he's carsick. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Listen, Jesus says from now on, I will be seated at the right hand of God. He is the judge. God will not be mocked. In the face of the mockery of the sacrificial system, Jesus doesn't come and offer an overpriced lamb, but Jesus becomes the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He lays Himself on that altar because God will not be mocked. In the mockery of this justice system, Jesus says, I am the judge. And church, He will have the last word. He will have the last word. The last word on earth came three days later. As Jesus rose again from the dead that Sunday morning. Oh, they tried their best. They put Him on the cross. They didn't listen to Him. They mocked Him. They killed Him. And He got up again. Oh, He's going to have the last word. And He will have the last word in eternity. At His word, every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who can stand against the Lord? No one can. 
No one can. Who can stand against the king? No one can. No one can. Victory belongs to Jesus. You cannot encounter Jesus and remain neutral. You have encountered Jesus this morning. How now shall we live? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ reigns on the throne today. We confess that Christ is our Messiah. He is our Christ. The Son of God. The Lamb. The Judge. God, let us live for Christ. As we go from here, let us maintain faith in Jesus Christ so that Christ might get the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.